Father, we thank you for the privilege we have of lifting our thoughts and trying to comprehend your thoughts. We pray that you will be with us now and that you'll give us understanding and wisdom. We, uh, we need wisdom because we're just not that smart. And we pray that you would be our wisdom and our strength and our righteousness in all that we do for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, title is The Long Campaign. Um, Lucifer, Lies, Love, and Logic. Um, what we're looking at here is the kind of a philosophical basis for how to finish the Lord's work. Um, it's a good idea to have the um, to have the right idea. <laughs> Let's put it that way, okay? Um, and so um, that's that's where we're going with this, okay? We're going to start off with a perhaps an unusual place for a, a talk like this, but going to Luke chapter ten, Jesus is speaking, and he said to them, "I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven." Okay. Uh, what is this all talking about, right? Jesus is talking now to the 70 disciples. He just, he'd sent them out on their missionary tour and they'd come back and they had said to him, uh, you know, they made their comments about how even the, the spirits, the evil spirits were subject to them in Christ's name. And he was talking and he says this, he said this unusual comment. He said, I saw Satan saw like lightning from heaven. So when did this happen? That's, that's the first question we're going to look at. When did this fall of Satan from heaven happen okay most Adventists are going to quickly think of this verse or these verses Revelation 12 7 through 9 and war broke out in heaven Michael and his angels fought with the dragon the dragon and his angels fought but they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer so the great dragon was cast out that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who diseased the whole world he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him okay um how many people thought of that verse when I asked the question? Okay, yeah, good, okay. That's a standard Adventist response. It's a good response. But notice just one minor little thing. When we make the connection between I saw Satan fall like, from, like lightning from heaven, when we make that connection with this verse, we are equating cast out with fall. Right? With me on that? Okay. Not a not a huge issue, but just keep that in mind. Okay, uh, are the two phrases equivalent? And that's just something to ponder. Notice the Bible reference here. Revelation twelve seven through nine. Just keep that in mind. Okay. You'll notice it's uh, described up there as stage one. Now we're going to bounce on to stage two, and as we go along, you'll figure out what I'm talking about with all these this idea of stage this and stage that. Okay. <clears throat> Jesus uh, talking now in a different verse here. He said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. John 12, 31. Okay. This was just before the crucifixion. Um, we usually think of the crucifixion as being the event that accomplished this. Okay. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. But here's a question for you. Here it says, cast out. 
is that cast out the same as the cast out that we read about in Revelation 12? Right? Remember, we, we kind of made a connection between fall, I saw Satan fall, and him being cast out in Revelation 12. Well, here's one where Jesus is using the exact same words. He says, you know, Satan was cast, or the rule of this world will be cast out. And, and notice here, it's a little bit tricky because which tenses will be? Future tense. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. So if there's a connection, if, if that cast out here in John 12 is this, means the same thing or refers to the same thing as the cast out in Revelation 12, then we could ask ourselves, is Revelation 12 really talking about the crucifixion? Um, and if that's true, where does the fall from heaven before the creation of the earth all fit in? Well, toss this thought in here. Side of Ages 761, Christ bowed his head and died, but he held fast his faith and his submission to God. Obviously, this is the crucifixion. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Notice the reference. That Ellen White quotes. Revelation 12:10. We just read Revelation 12:7 through 9, looking at Satan being cast out of heaven before the creation of the earth. And here's Ellen White's talking about the crucifixion, obviously. And she's quoting Revelation 12:10. Well, it's interesting. Why'd she quote that verse? You know, there's lots of verses out there. Why quote that one? You know, well, that's what she did, though. Okay. And notice uh, here that, again, we have cast out and cast down. Huh. Okay. So we've got a lot of casting going on here. <laughs> Just something to keep in mind. Well, try to make a little more sense out of this as we move along. Notice what Ellen White says here. After the crucifixion, Satan saw that he had overreached himself. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away, that the character he had tried to fasten on Christ was fastened on himself. It was as if he had the second time fallen from heaven. Really? Interesting. <laughs> okay. It was as if he had the second time fallen from heaven. But this is the crucifixion. Scratch, scratch, you know, okay. Um, it's like as if there's something, shall I say, overlapping between these two events of prior to creation of the earth and the crucifixion. There's, there's a, it's almost like the inspired authors are just kind of shifting, time warping back and forth from one to the other almost interchangeably. Kind of interesting, okay. Actually, Ellen White makes the, uh, the linkage even stronger. Try this statement. God looked upon the victim expiring on the cross, obviously the crucifixion, and said, it is finished. The human race shall have another trial. The redemption price was paid and Satan fell like lightning from heaven at the crucifixion. She dropped the it was as if part and just said, it happened. He fell like lightning from heaven. But the fact that the other time she said it was as if he had fallen the second time means that she's obviously thinking of the first time, too. Okay. Cool. I love stuff that, you know, 
takes a little thinking to get to the bottom of. Stage one, stage two, moving on, stage three. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Well, this looks kind of familiar. We already quoted the... I mean, this is Revelation 12, 10 to 12. We've already looked at verse 10 in connection with the crucifixion. So, you know, we've already talked about this. Why am I calling it stage three? Well, notice the particulars. The accuser of our brethren has been cast down. First item. They overcame him. There's, there's a group of people, whoever the they is, right? They overcame him. They have beaten the devil. But they did so at significant risk to their lives, right? They did not love their lives to the death. Because of what they did, that's what therefore means, right? It's because of the foregoing, right? Because of what they did, because they overcame, everybody who lives in the heavens is happy, but it's not good news for the folks that live in the wrong places, on the earth and the sea. And this is all because the devil is really mad because he's running out of time and he knows it. Okay, so take the, I'm going to take those particulars we just kind of itemized off, put them into a nice little list. Just read that list. Just look at that list and tell me, when does that happen? What is that talking about? Sounds like the end of time. Sure. Who's the group of people? The remnant. The remnant. Yeah. Um, we could call them the uh, the hundred forty four thousand as well. Yeah. This is. You just, you just look at it, and it's it's you know screaming out at you. End of time. <laughs> okay. So. Um, hmm. Interesting. Let's go on here. Great Controversy 623 says this, The Apostle John in vision heard a loud voice in heaven exclaiming, Revelation 12, 12, we just quoted, right? Fearful are the scenes which call forth this exclamation from the heavenly voice. The wrath of Satan increases as his time grows short and his work of deceit and destruction will reach its culmination in the time of trouble. Okay, so, yeah, this exclamation of Revelation 12, 12, this passage here in Great Controversy is clearly linking with the time of trouble, the, you know, the time of the end, okay? So, does that mean that Revelation 12 is really talking about three different episodes? We've got the fall of Satan before creation, we've got the crucifixion of Christ, we've got the, uh, the end of time. Three different pictures we're seeing out of these same verses. It's kind of interesting. Well, we're not quite done. Let's go on. Satan is an accuser of the brethren. His accusing power is employed against those who work righteousness. The Lord desires through his people to answer Satan's charges by showing the results of obedience to right principles. Now, this is an important thought. And I just want to leave this one kind of floating in your head a little bit here. Okay? It's through his people that God 
the Lord says, I guess, it's through his people that the Lord desires to answer Satan's charges. That's you and me. Satan has made accusations against the government of God. Until those accusations are responded to, they remain. They're there. There's not been a good answer yet. Not a complete answer yet. There are things, at least, that are hinging on God's people. Okay? Well, let's see. Um, notice this. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. It is the atmosphere of this love surrounding the soul of the believer that makes him a savor of life unto life. Notice that the, the way she introduces it, the, the completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. Sometimes it seems to me that we kind of address the issue and we say, oh, if only everybody in the church, what, you know, if everybody in the church would stop eating meat, you know, okay, I'm a vegetarian, I'm a big fan of vegetarian diet, but you know what, it, the completeness of Christian character is not attained by stopping the consumption of dead animals. That does not attain the completeness of Christian character, you know. Um, if, uh, you know, if everybody, you know, would just be more conscientious in Sabbath observance. I'm a big fan of Sabbath. But, you know, that's not what she says is the completeness of Christian character. The completeness of Christian character is when there's a constant impulse to help and bless others. That's interesting. Now, I happen to think that a constant impulse to help and bless others will inspire people to stop eating meat and to observe the Sabbath. <laughs> okay? But notice what she says there, because that's going to become important. This thought right here, that stage three is the, um, is the defeat of Satan at the end of time and is to be done through God's people, and the completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others that idea, those, those, that little package right there, is the link between this presentation and all the ones that follow. Okay? This is very important to me. Everything I'm involved with at this point comes from that concept. So that's, that's why I'm belaboring that. Was there a question? Christ Object Lesson 69. Yes. And I thought, well, you know, that's the, that's the culmination and the change in the go to heaven. Well, the, the same on the opposite scale happened uh, at the time of the flood. The thought and intent of their heart evil continually. Yes. Okay. Restoring totally opposite. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I link those two verses. You're you're right on track, in my opinion. Okay. Um, let's go on. Talking about stage four now. Uh, oddly enough, stage four takes us right back where we started. Jesus talking to the seventy disciples. Okay. That's where this picks up here. Like the apostles, the 70 had received supernatural endowments as a seal of their mission. 
When their work was completed, they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Jesus answered, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. It's always struck me as a strange answer to that comment, you know. Um, I probably would have been scratching my head saying, okay, what's he talking about? But going on with this quotation now, the scenes of the past and the future were presented to the mind of Jesus. Past and future. Interesting. He beheld Lucifer as he was first cast out from the heavenly places. That would be our stage one. Okay, it's definitely in the past. He looked forward to the scenes of his own agony when before all the worlds the character of the deceiver should be unveiled. He heard the cry, it is finished. That's his own cry. He heard this, you know, prophetically. It is finished. Announcing that the redemption of the lost race was forever made certain, that heaven was made eternally secure against the accusations, the deceptions, the pretensions that Satan would instigate. Okay? So that would be stage two, as we've characterized them. Going on, the statement says, Beyond the cross of Calvary, with its agony and shame, Jesus looked forward to the great final day when the prince of the power of the air will meet his destruction in the earth so long marred by his rebellion. Jesus beheld the work of evil forever ended and the peace of God filling heaven and earth. And that's stage four. Is after the millennium. The final destruction of Satan. Okay, we went one, two, jumped to four. Now we come back to three. Henceforward, Christ's followers were to look upon Satan as a conquered foe. Upon the cross, Jesus was to gain the victory for them. That victory he desired them to accept as their own. Now that's kind of a veiled reference to three at the end of time where God's people defeat Satan. Okay? So that's it. Um, all four stages of this process, and we'll understand it more in a moment, but you know, all four stages of that, and you know, that's kind of a, an interesting quotation, you know, and, and um, I might have thought that that comes from some sort of an obscure source or something, but it's really just desire of ages. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've read over that and never thought of it, which tells me that I need to keep reading those books. You know? uh, there are a lot of good books that the Lord has given us that we should be reading frequently. <laughs> so I'd like to put in a plug for spending uh, you know, less time with the television, perhaps, and more time with something else. Okay. Let's do a quick recap. Approximately 6,000 years ago, the members of the Godhead understood Satan's plans and arguments and rejected them. That was Lucifer's fall from heaven before creation. Okay? The angels did not all understand at that point. Some of them were completely deceived and fell with Lucifer. Others were not completely deceived but they still did not fully understand and they weren't able to fully reject Satan's accusations and arguments and plans at that point. Okay? That's our stage one. Stage two, approximately 2,000 years ago. Angels and unfallen worlds understood Satan's plans and arguments and rejected them. That was at the cross. Desire of Ages says that you know, it was at the cross that the last tie of sympathy between Lucifer and the unfallen angels was finally, finally broken. That wasn't the sympathy of, oh, I feel so far, sorry, oh, that kind of sympathy. It was that, well, there's a, there's a certain logic to what he says kind of a sympathy. Does that make sense? You know, I, I can sympathize with your reasoning, okay? Well, 
Until the cross, the angels did not have all the reasons they needed to reject Lucifer. But when he killed Christ, and that was the first, by the way, just make a quick point there. Up to that time, you could look at it and say, well, Lucifer is a murderer. But, you know, Lucifer had the perfect counter-argument. All he'd say was, you know, don't talk to me about killing people. It's God's law that says these sinners have to die. He's the one that made that law. How they die may be irrelevant, but God's the one that says they have to die. Blame it on him, not me. It's his law that's wrong. Lucifer had some pretty tricky arguments. I don't think we have been exposed to much of his subtle reasoning yet. But anyhow, so the angels had a hard time. But when Jesus came, Lucifer killed not only the Son of God, but it was the first and only sinless being who ever died. How do you defend killing somebody who's not guilty? And that's what tipped it over the edge with, with all the angels and Lucifer. You know, this guy killed somebody who's innocent. You can't blame that on anybody else. That's him. So, 2,000 years ago, that was stage two. Stage three, near future, hopefully. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> the remnant, the 144,000, will understand Satan's plans and arguments and will reject them. This is when God's people show through obedience to right principles the uh, rebuttal, shall we say, to Satan's arguments, okay? That's what Jesus is hoping to do. He's, he's hoping to use, you know, through his people to demonstrate the falsity of Satan's claims. We're going to have to understand that. You know, Adam and Eve chose the knowledge of good and evil. And I just have a hunch that we're going to have to have a full understanding of both. Now, we chose to go down this route. And so it's like God says, okay, that's not what I would have chosen for you. But you know what? I am confident enough in the righteousness of truth that even if you want to go down that route, once you learn all about it, you'll end up back where I told you you should be. Um, there will be losses along the way, of course. But, you know, okay. That's stage three. And stage four, a thousand years after the second coming, the wicked will understand Satan's plans and arguments and will reject them. Okay? Now, notice... It's easiest for us to understand stage one and two because they're already in the past and so we can look at them as history. Stage three and four are both future and obviously, you know, we don't do that well at reading the future perfectly so it's a little harder for us to understand. But notice this. Stage three is the only one that human beings manifestly contribute to. <laughs> yeah. That's the one where we have a part to play. What stage of the process are we held up on? <laughs> it's exactly where we have some responsibility to play in God's plan. That's where everything has come to a yeah, grinding halt. <laughs> okay. Ah, uh, no, the Lord's plan is moving forward, but it is, you know, that's that's it can look like it that way. Okay. Um okay. So we're going to look at the last two parts now because those are the ones that are yet future and um, we have a part to contribute to. You know, there are times when I look at the magnitude of what God is saying will be done to finish the work. And I frankly say it's never going to happen in my lifetime. <laughs> just, you know, I, I, don't, I can't point to any mechanism where I can say, oh, uh, yeah, that's going to do it. 
I don't see anything on the horizon that's going to do what God says needs to be done. Now, does that mean it can't be done? No. Does that mean it won't be done? No. Because God can do things that I can't see. Okay. But having said that, if you, you know, there's a lot of good things going on. But with all due respect to everything that I know of the, you know, the gospel work in the world today, we're still losing ground. <laughs> you know, people are being born faster than we're reaching them with the gospel. It's not, a, it's not a, a recipe for success. Okay, so it would be possible to get discouraged if you didn't believe that God has a few techniques and tricks up his sleeve that we haven't seen yet, you know, and if we understand how to do what he wants us to do, I am convinced that things will move forward faster, you know, on a scale of several magnitudes faster. We'll go like fire in the stubble, all that says, okay? So we're going to look at um, stage three and four. Start off with some basic stuff here. Familiar verse, Great Commission, this gospel we preach to all the world as a witness all nations, and then the end will come. Okay? We commonly assume that the gospel will be preached to all the world, and then the end will come. We assume that that's the order it happens, and that is the order it happens. The question is, what's the cause and effect basis? Why must the gospel go to all the world before the end? Why doesn't Jesus just say, uh, okay, time's up, end? You know, why doesn't he do that? Why does the gospel have to go to the world first? Um, here's the hint. It isn't so everybody has a chance to be saved. That's not the reason for taking the gospel of the world. If that were a necessary thing, what about the, I don't know, hundreds of billions perhaps, the people that have already lived and died and never heard a word of the gospel? How does God judge them? You know? And Paul and Zechariah and, uh, of course, Ellen White all talk about what we refer to as the unevangelized heathen who are in heaven. You know, you don't have to know about Jesus to respond to the Spirit, the Spirit of God. And there will be some who are in heaven. And it's like, you know, that would be just, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd love to watch that. You know, it's like, kind of like they wake up in the resurrection. They say, Wow, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> I don't know anything about this, but it seems like a good thing I'm here. <laughs> you know? um, they'll have a lot to learn. Okay? But if God can deal with those people in the past, I, I really don't see any reason to assume that the gospel has to go to all the world so that he can end things then. Just you know, give everybody a chance. Everybody has a chance. So why? Okay. Before I try to answer the question of why the gospel has to go, let's look at this question. Which gospel is this gospel? Okay. Let's just suppose that we could arrange things so that Pope, what's his name, Benedict now, could preach an evangelistic series with broadcast to every person on earth. Would the end come? Mm, I'm going to say no. No offense to Mr. Benedict, but I don't think so. How about Benny Hinn or Jerry Falwell or James Dobson or Joel Osteen? If these guys could preach gospel sermons to everybody on earth, would the end come? And I'm going to say, I don't think so. What about Jan Paulson? Or I guess I could replace that name now. I could put in Ted Wilson. Or Dwight Nelson or Doug Batchelor or Mark Finley or David Asherick or... Dave Feather, my name doesn't really belong on that list, but I put it up there just to make it personal. What if I could preach the gospel to all the world? Would that bring on the end? 
Here's my point. The gospel has to be complete, mature, and powerful enough to bring on the end. There's a qualitative aspect to the final gospel as well as a quantitative. It's not just that everybody has to hear, you know, somebody stand up and say, do you accept Jesus as your Savior? Oh, I do. Okay. You know, well, the gospel's gone all the world then. You know? ah, there's a, a quality. That it has to accomplish certain things. Okay? So, what is that all about? <laughs> um, okay. Quality is always in God's service at least as significant as quantity. Um, you know, cattle on a thousand hills are the Lord's. It's not that he needs our money. He needs the quality of our devotion. Okay? Well, something is holding up the work then, and we're going to try and track that down here. I call this a holding pattern. Uh, Paul, excuse me, John writing, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice, the four angels to whom it was granted to him to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Okay, so here's the question. What is the holdup, right? The slide before here. Okay, just the ranger. Um, they're saying, you know, holding the four winds, right? And uh, they want them to continue holding and hold, you know, hold everything up, right? And what's the hold up? It's till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. The sealing, or the lack thereof, is holding up God's word. Angels say, wait, wait until we get the ceiling done. Can't go ahead. Okay. The ceiling is the holdup, shall we say. Um, we could also say that the ceiling is what's holding Satan up. He was, you know, he's been falling for a long time. We just saw all the falls of Satan, right? He's been falling and he, he really should have been on the rocks already by this time. But it's because God's plans have been held up that he's just kind of held up in a different sense. He's kind of floating there yet. You know, he's still in the middle of his fall, but he's still kind of floating, right? Okay. Why can't God's plans go forward without the ceiling? Is the ceiling necessary? Well, what makes it necessary? I mean, is there a reason why it's necessary? Or did God just simply say, well, we're not going to do anything until we get everybody sealed. Why, Lord? Eh, just I don't want to. You know, eh, first things first. Let's get the ceiling done, and then we'll move on. Or is there something more to it? I submit that there's substantially more to it than, than something of that nature. Okay. Um, I'm going to toss in this verse here. This says that uh, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the church, by the church, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Uh, okay, audio verse person, please cut this out. I'm experiencing technical difficulties with the contact lens. <laughs> and this will slow everything down. If I can't get this thing back where it needs to be, because I can't see anything without them. 
Could you, um, I don't have a mirror. Can you tell me where the thing is at? Can you see the lens? It's obvious when you see it. Not seeing it yet. There it is on the right. Yeah, there it is. Okay, thank you. Okay. Happy Audioverse person. I hope you're very attentive because this will sound funny if it goes up on the web like this. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to trust them. Um, <laughs> okay. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. People like you and me, somehow God wants to use us to make a demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God in such a unique sense that angels will learn something they've never been able to learn before. That's an impressive thought. Okay? So let's just say this then. It is the need of the demonstration of the wisdom of God that comes through the ceiling of the 144,000 that is holding things up. Okay? It's this manifestation that's associated with the ceiling. That's what is Holding, holding things up. God is saying, you know, we have to demonstrate some things as we go. It's going to get a little, not complicated, but convoluted here. So we go on now. What is the wisdom of God? It's the manifold wisdom of God that's supposed to be manifest. What are we talking about here? You know, it's almost, you know, it almost seems, like, I don't know, sacrilegious or something, or, you know, I don't mean blasphemous or something, to, for me to be talking about the wisdom of God, like as if I know anything about it, you know, but... But follow me with this. Okay, we're going to ask four questions. What plans are being held up? Okay. What wisdom of God could possibly require demonstration? Why does God have to demonstrate anything? I mean, he's in charge. What specifics need to be demonstrated? And can the ceiling demonstrate what is needed? We're just going to go through each of those four questions in order. So, first one is what plans are being held up, okay? Well, this goes back to the um, holding of the four winds, okay? That's, that's where the holdup is until the ceiling, okay? So what plans are they? Well, everything from the ceiling on. You know, we, we, we can't go forward until we get the ceiling out of the way. So that would include things like the close of probation, time of Jacob's trouble, the second coming, the reward of the righteous, and the destruction of the wicked, okay? There's other things that fit into that you know, time span as well. But all those things are going to be just held until the ceiling, okay? Go on to our second question. What wisdom of God could possibly require demonstration? Why does God have to demonstrate anything? And who's he demonstrating it to, by the way? Well, remember back, we talked about the manifold wisdom of God being made manifest to the church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places? That's a friendly audience, that's important to know. God is going to demonstrate, manifest important stuff for the guys who are already on his side. It's that important for, to God that he provide the answers for those, I don't want to say people, but you know, those angels, those beings, the, the unfallen worlds. They already, they're sympathetic. But there are answers, and, and it's more important to God that those answers be settled once and for all than it is for the people out there. The, the people out there, they're, they're cool. They can handle it. They say, you don't, God, we don't understand everything yet, but we trust you. And God says, I appreciate your trust, but you know what? I want you to understand this. This is very important for me. I want you to understand this. So what wisdom 
could possibly require demonstration. Well, we just listed five things that hadn't happened yet, and two of them jump out from that list. Let me see if we can get anybody to track with me. There's the five. Give me two things that you think would you know, have a, a, a good case to say God better demonstrate his reasons on this. There you go. Thank you. The last two, the reward of the righteous, the destruction of the wicked. Why are those things important? Well, we'll see. Um, here's why they're important. Um, suppose a teacher... Well, let's see. I want to make one point first here. Okay. Um, the, uh, the reward of the righteous is really important because right now if Jesus went to Lucifer no excuse me Gabriel if Jesus went to Gabriel and said Gabriel there's a guy down there by the name of Dave Fiedler I'd like to bring him up here do you have any problem with that you know what Gabriel would say he would say don't you dare I, I've, I've seen that guy he's not ready for up here we already had sin here once. Don't do it again, Jesus. The angels have a very good reason to be cautious about the idea of taking people like you and me to heaven. You know, that's a very risky proposition. Add to that, just kick out another thought here, just so you understand the magnitude of this. How many, uh, what's the Bible say? How many, how many, um, how many beings have immortality. God alone hath immortality. What does it say is, is going to happen at the second coming? This mortal must put on immortality. Angels are not immortal. Angels have conditional everlasting life, but it's conditional. That's why God, that's why Lucifer can, will finally be destroyed. Immortality is the inability to die, not just that you don't ever die, it's that you're, it's, it's, you're incapable of dying. I thought I had that turned off, I'm sorry. Um, God is going to take people like you and me who have actively participated in sin and make them immortal so he can't get rid of them? I mean, Immortal means, isn't it? No. That's a, that's a, I, don't, I don't know. I'm sure there are aspects of that that I don't fully understand. Trust me, it's over my head. But the, the angels in heaven have a very, very good reason to monitor this question of the reward of the righteous. And secondly, the destruction of the wicked. We might think they'll be rejoicing, but remember, Gabriel and Lucifer used to work together. They were friends. Do you want to see your friends executed? God better have a good reason. Because he was my friend. Isn't there something you can do for him? Well, why is, how does this work? Suppose a teacher here. This is just a, a weak illustration, but it's the best I can do. Suppose a teacher gave a math test, and everyone in the whole class flunked. That'd be bad. 
to be honest, it's probably the teacher's fault <laughs> when that happens. Um, but that's okay. Everybody flunks. But then the teacher announces that seven members of the class will pass anyway. Really? Why? Okay. So you ask, why, teacher? And he says, oh, it's because they have blue eyes. Really? What have blue eyes got to do with a math test? Absolutely nothing. It's not a good reason. Okay? Well, what would be a good reason? Let's try this on precise. Suppose everybody takes a test, everybody flunks, the teacher says, okay, we obviously need to renew, review this material, they spend a week on it, and he gives the test again. And maybe seven of them pass the test then, but the others don't pass it. Would that be a good reason for the seven passing? Well, yeah, it's a much better reason, okay? Um, but does that test guarantee that those seven students are never going to fail a, or you know, mess up a math test, math question again, you know? It's not a guarantee. And it raises another question, you know, I mean, well, that's, that's analogous to the question of what test do you have to pass to be sure that you're safe to go to heaven? You know? Is it just any test? Oh, well, I, I passed the test on appetite. I passed up that Twinkie today. So I must be ready to go to heaven because I gained the victory on that. Well, maybe I did, but, you know, what about the apple pie tomorrow? <laughs> you know, how do you have a test that guarantees, okay? And what about the students who failed the test twice? They flunked the math test. They flunked it the second time. What if the teacher took another week and gave them another test? What if they flunked it again? How many times does a person have to flunk a test before the teacher says, this kid is absolutely hopeless? You know, hey, I spent 20 years as a teacher, and there are times when you do that. You say, you know, I'm sorry, man, you got an F on that one. You failed. But that's a whole lot easier when you're talking about a report card than it is when you're talking about eternal life. How do you say this person absolutely cannot, under any circumstances, be saved. How do you justify that? That's my question, okay? Well, um, so back to our question here. What specifics need to be demonstrated? To justify his government's rulings on the reward of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked, God needs to do three things. Try to track with me on this. This is important stuff, okay? He needs to show that there is a good reason some are lost and some are saved. Okay? That's necessary because Lucifer has been saying for a thousands, well, thousands of years now that God's people have sinned. They deserve to be lost just like me. How can you save them and not save me? They sinned, same as I did. If you can't come up with a good reason to say some are lost and some are saved, God's in a world of hurt, okay? He needs to show that the people he wants to take to heaven are safe to have there. We already talked about that. And he needs to show that there is nothing more that even God could do to help the wicked. How do you give up on someone and send them to eternal destruction 
unless you can demonstrate that they are, in fact, completely lost. Okay? Um, God's people have to be completely safe to take the heaven, and the wicked have to be completely lost in order to justify their destruction. So then the last question we had there was, can the ceiling demonstrate what is needed? And fortunately, the answer is yes. I don't suppose that surprises you when I say that now. Okay, we're going to go through some basic information here real fast. The seal of God is contrasted with the mark of the beast. You already knew that. A seal, name, title, jurisdiction. You've all gone to an evangelistic series and heard that before probably, right? Okay. The seal of God, this information uh, about the seal is found in the Sabbath commandment, name, title, jurisdiction, okay? You're all familiar with that. The mark of the beast is readily identified as the claim to have changed Sabbath to Sunday, contrasting all that. Okay, so that's a, that's good standard Adventist eschatology. Now we look at a little time chart type of thing. It's not to scale. It doesn't have everything on it, but it uh, will be helpful to us nonetheless. The ceiling, close of probation, time of Jacob's trouble, second coming, then the millennium, the wicked are raised and the wicked are destroyed. Okay? Um, the seal of God is placed in the foreheads of 144,000 before the close of probation. Just notice that. Before probation closes. The close of probation marks the end of Christ's work as high priest in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Okay? I don't know how many people, you know, had this kind of mindset too but I used to always think of the seal of God as kind of like uh, the diploma you know it's like it's it's the, the seal of good housekeeping this guy passed but you know what you don't hand out diplomas till students take the final test and the final test is down here so what's the purpose of the seal what's what's going on with the seal the conflict between the observance of Sabbath and the mark of the beast reaches its peak during the time of Jacob's trouble when those resisting the combined religious political authority of the world are condemned to death. Okay, well, we're just noting here it's the time of Jacob's trouble. I'm going to skip over this a little bit quickly. How did Jacob get into this? Well, it originally came from Jeremiah chapter 30 where the expression is used there. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but Jeremiah is referring back to... Um, Genesis, the story of him of wrestling with the angel by the river Jabbok, okay? Uh, and um, notice what's happening here. He wrestles all night from midnight till dawn. It had to be a minimum of five hours. I don't know what time of year it was over there, but the sun doesn't come up that close to the equator any earlier than about five, okay? That's a very long time to wrestle. <laughs> you know, just, you know. And I don't think this was Olympic, International Olympic Committee nice guy wrestling rules. This was the kind of wrestling that you do when you're going to die if you lose this. And so this has been going on for five hours and I suspect there was blood. This was not pleasant stuff. And suddenly the angel reaches out and touches his thigh and in an obviously miraculous manner Jacob is injured. And he realizes that the angel he's been wrestling against, well, he realizes the, the one he's been wrestling against is the angel of the covenant, is the one he's been praying to all night long. God, deliver me, help me, you know. He's been praying to the same one he's been fighting against. He's, the, he's been praying to the guy whose nose he just smashed with his forehead, the guy whose kidneys he tried to rip out with his elbow. 
Now, when you come up to that, you're faced with two, two very stark possibilities. You can either say, oh, man, look what I've done to this guy. He must hate me. I'm dead. Or you say, look what he just did. And he didn't kill me. He must love me. I mean, if he can take my hip out of whack with a miraculous touch, why didn't he take my heart out? I don't know where I'd come down on that question. But the real question right there for Jacob is, does God love me or does God hate me? Jacob fell to his knees and grabbed him and said, don't, I won't let you go unless you bless me. He clearly believed that God loved him. Okay? That's very important. That's the basic test at the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is not the only illustration of this. We have examples. We have the book of Job. Remember this verse? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And of course, the greatest example, Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what makes this all special? I'm sorry. Uh, what makes this all special? Millions of people have died. What's the difference here? Well, um, this is not the normal test of martyrdom because at this time, in the time of Jacob's trouble, no high priest interceded in the heavenly sanctuary. The 144,000 feel no sense of God's abiding presence. It's like Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus did not have the same assurance that the martyrs have had. When the martyrs have gone to their death, they had the sense of God's presence and acceptance. Jesus had none of that. The 144,000 will have none of that. That's a different issue. That's the, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Okay? Every sensory input tells them that, the, that God is their enemy, that he wants to kill them. This is a classic statement. Those who live in the last days must pass through an experience similar to that of Jacob. Foes will be all around them, ready to condemn and destroy. Alarm and despair will so seize them, for it appears to them, as to Jacob in their distress, that God himself has become an avenging enemy. They gave up their job, they gave up their family, they gave up their home, they moved out in the country, they're, they're doing everything for God's law, they're keeping the Sabbath, everybody in the whole world wants to kill them. And then God himself, in some way that I don't fully understand, appears to be ready to stab them in the back. What do they do now? Do they trust him or not? They do. They do. Right at the bottom, with sweet and subdued voices, they say to one another, God is our friend. This test shows, by placing his seal on 144,000 before this most difficult of all tests, this is the one test that shows they're never going to fail a test again because it's the hardest test of all. If you pass the hardest test, you're, you're good on the other ones. By placing his seal on the 144,000 before this most difficult of all tests, God provides convincing evidence that he can correctly identify those who are safe to let into heaven. Because everyone on, this time, on earth at this time is familiar with this gospel. The gospel has gone to all the world. Okay? They all have the knowledge. Only those who, pass, who have faith pass the test. What this is, is it's, it's a very rigorous scientific experiment where you reduce it down to a single variable. Any auto mechanics? You know, if your car's not doing so well on the gas mileage, you would not 
change the spark plugs, give the engine an overhaul, and then change to a different brand of gas and say, I'm getting better mileage off of this brand of gas. You wouldn't have any idea whether it was because of the spark plugs or the gasoline or the engine overhaul. You want to get it down to one variable. God's making a demonstration, and he has to get it down to a single variable. So the knowledge has to be covered. Everybody has to know the gospel. The only difference is that those who have faith pass the test. All those who have faith pass the test. In uh, formal logic lingo, that would mean that faith is both sufficient and necessary to pass this test. Okay? Don't worry about that if you're not into that. Um, faith plus a knowledge of this gospel is sufficient for complete obedience. Faith is necessary for salvation, and faith plus knowledge, okay? Hope you're following that. That's a little bit tricky, but I have to hurry right now. The reason this is important is because now Jesus has the right to resurrect people like Martin Luther. Martin Luther did not keep the Sabbath. Martin Luther was all goofed up on infant baptism, bless his heart. He lived on roast beast, sauerkraut, and beer. He wasn't much of a health reformer, okay? He was a German. <laughs> and he was not the most patient of individuals. I wouldn't be either on that diet, okay? <laughs> um, he once advocated killing all my ancestors. That was nice. <laughs> I'm glad he changed his mind eventually on that. Um, but you know, Martin Luther's my hero, one of them. He had faith. And so Jesus goes to the, the universe now and he says, you know what? The investigative judgment has found that Martin Luther has faith. He didn't understand the Sabbath. He didn't understand these things. We can teach him that up here. But now we've demonstrated that faith is the only absolute requirement to salvation. Do you mind if I bring him home to heaven? And after that demonstration, not a soul on earth or in the universe is going to complain. Okay? There won't be a single voice raised in objection because righteousness really is by faith. Fast forward. A thousand years later. Thorough examination of the book's record. Time has come for finished sin and sinners forever. Okay, you're familiar with this. New Jerusalem comes down, a great plain, whatever, the wicked are resurrected. They have a period of time during which they get themselves organized and manufacture weapons, apparently. I'm curious what that will be. At last, the order to advance is given, and the countless host moves on. An army such as was never summoned by earthly conquerors, such as the combined forces of all ages since the war began on earth, could never equal. Satan, the mightiest of warriors, leads the van, and his angels unite their forces for this final struggle. Kings and warriors are in his train, and the multitudes follow in vast companies, each under its appointed leader. With military precision, the serried ranks advance over the earth's broken surface to the city of God. By command of Jesus, the gates of the New Jerusalem are closed, and the armies of Satan surround the city and make ready for the onset. What is the most amazing thing that just happened there? The gates are closed, which means they've been open. The gates were open. I may be reading too much into this. I believe God gave them the invitation. If you want, if you trust me, come inside the city. And there wasn't a single soul out there. Don't go in there, Marvin. Uh, you can't trust that guy. Yeah, that, that's a trap. You go in there, but you, don't know. you have no idea what they're going to do once you go in there, man. Don't go in there. Just as the righteous 
pass the hardest of all possible tests of faith, the wicked fail the easiest of all possible tests of faith. That's how God shows that even he could not help them any further. There is nothing more that he could do. That's important. What about the little lady that lives down the street that you know, rose, raises nice little roses in her flower bed and gives cookies to the children, but she never accepted Jesus as her Savior? What excuse do you have her for, for sending her to hell? Well, you don't need an excuse. She demonstrates right here that she's not safe in heaven. Would Jesus... The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who said, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. The one who has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Would that Jesus accept a repentant and trusting sinner and let him into heaven? I believe he would. But there aren't any there. <laughs> because his judgment, the investigative judgment, has been so thorough and so perfect that there's no mistake made. There's no one with a single particle of faith outside that city. That's the difference. Righteousness is by faith. Notwithstanding that Satan has been constrained to acknowledge God's justice and bow to the supremacy of Christ, his character remains unchanged. The spirit of rebellion, like a mighty torrent, again bursts forth. He rushes into the midst of his subjects and endeavors to inspire them with his own fury and arouse them to instant battle. But of all the countless millions whom he has allured into rebellion, there are none now to acknowledge his supremacy. His power is at an end, and that is his fourth and final fall from heaven. Even the wicked reject his arguments at that point. Nobody will follow him. You want to know what negative peer pressure feels like? Put yourself in that position. The Bible tells us about this. Isaiah. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. There are reasons for the great controversy. There are things to be accomplished by God's people. There's a demonstration to be made and everything else that I want to talk about the rest of the day and tomorrow has to do with the details of that demonstration. Okay, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we do thank you. I, I love it when things make sense. I want to have faith for when those things don't make sense, but I love it when things do come together and make sense. And so I just, I just pray that you'll be with us now. Help us to grasp everything that we can of understanding your plans and your principles and put that into practice. Pray that you'll guide us and direct us and keep us now. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.